Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Hassan Al-Tayyab of the Friends Committee on National Legislation, who discusses his group's advocacy for a return of all hostages, unfettered aid access, and reaching an agreement on a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Nicholas Stephanopoulos Kirkland and Ellis Professor of Law at Harvard University, who examines the recent Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that further erodes the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And Harriet Prince, an 82-year-old survivor of Canada's Indian residential schools, who told her story of her abduction from her family at the November 23rd National Day of Mourning March and Rally in Plymouth, Massachusetts. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In the early 1950s, the Inuit people living next to a giant U.S. Air Force base called Thule in northwest Greenland were forced to move for expansion of the base. Thule, with a deep water port, became one of America's largest military bases in the world and hub of U.S. nuclear weapons operations during the Cold War. In 1968, a USB-52 bomber carrying four nuclear weapons crashed near the base. In these times reports that with rising political and economic tensions between the U.S., Russia, and China, Greenland, which is administered by Denmark, has enormous strategic value. The U.S. is now spending millions of dollars to upgrade its Thule base, renamed Bidufik, and the Pentagon plans to expand surveillance capabilities across Greenland. Since 2005, Russia has built a dozen military bases across the Arctic. China, the leader in exploiting rare earth metals, in 2018 declared itself a near-Arctic state with ambitions to invest in mining operations in Greenland. The U.S. State Department is working with Greenland's government to survey southern Greenland for future strategic mineral mining. Meanwhile, the United Nations has expressed concern over environmental and social effects of military activities carried out in Greenland without the free, prior, and informed consent of the Inuit people. Since April, states across the U.S. have begun the biggest overhaul or unwinding of Medicaid in the 58-year history of the government health insurance program for people with low incomes and disabilities. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, states are reviewing the eligibility of more than 28 million people and have already terminated coverage for over 10 million. Millions more Americans are expected to lose their Medicaid coverage in the coming months. A historic drop in Medicaid coverage in Republican-controlled states is occurring as COVID-era protections are expiring. Since March 2020, Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program had grown by more than 22 million, reaching a total of 94 million enrollees. Health advocates say states have sent confusing renewal applications, mailed notices to wrong addresses, and miscalculated income levels for eligibility. 
There is concern that some states are deliberately exacerbating the confusion to discourage enrollment. Camille Rochot, Health Policy Director for the nonprofit Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, says this unwinding has not been about determining who is eligible by all possible means, but how we can kick people off by all means possible. In a historic voting rights case, the new liberal majority on Wisconsin's Supreme Court appears ready to strike down the state's legislative district maps, some of the most gerrymandered districts in the U.S. If the maps are redrawn, many believe more than a decade of Republican-majority rule in the Badger State will end. During three hours of oral arguments, the state Supreme Court fiercely debated the case, Clark v. Wisconsin Elections Commission, which was filed after liberal justices gained the majority on the Wisconsin High Court in August. In 2011, Republicans drew distorted district maps for the state legislature that packed Democrats into a few districts, making it impossible for the GOP to lose their majorities in the Assembly and State Senate. The Wisconsin Supreme Court gained control over the district map issue due to an impasse over redrawing the maps between the Republican-controlled state legislature and Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Because state election officials say they need new district maps in place no later than this March for the November 2024 election, the justices asked all the lawyers in the case to submit the names of nonpartisan mapmakers who could serve as a special master to advise them in designing new maps. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After an initial four-day humanitarian pause in Israel's airstrikes and ground assault in Gaza, the temporary truce negotiated by Qatar has been extended, resulting in, as of November 28th, the Hamas release of more than 80 Israeli hostages and the freeing of 180 Palestinian prisoners from Israeli jails. Hamas continues to hold some 160 hostages the terrorist group seized during their October 7th attack on Israel that killed some 1,200 men, women, and children. After seven weeks of Israeli air attacks and ground operations, the situation in Gaza, according to the UN Secretary General spokesperson, has taken an appalling toll that has shocked the world. The Ministry of Health in Gaza reports that as of November 27th, at least 14,800 Palestinians, mostly women and children, have been killed during hostilities. Under terms of the temporary pause in fighting, more aid trucks carrying emergency provisions of food, water, medical supplies, and fuel have been permitted to enter Gaza, but the supplies are wholly inadequate to meet the needs of Gaza's 2.3 million people. Your reporter spoke with Hassan Al-Tayyab, Legislative Director for Middle East Policy and Advocacy Organizer with the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Here he discusses his group's work advocating for a return of all hostages, unfettered aid access, and negotiations to achieve a permanent Gaza ceasefire. 
you know, after weeks and weeks of horrific violence, it's very welcome news right now that Israel and Hamas have agreed to exchange dozens of hostages and commit to a pause in the fighting, although brief. These exchanges, I think, acknowledge the inherent value of every single civilian, whether they're Israeli or Palestinian. Uh, but the deal is an important step, uh, but it's just not enough. And every humanitarian aid organization right now is pleading and begging for a permanent ceasefire. So we have to use this moment to keep building momentum to get the permanent ceasefire, uh, a return of all hostages, unfettered aid access, and really a pathway for peace for all Israelis and Palestinians. And you know, and that has to happen with diplomacy. I just do not see a way or a pathway for a military solution in this. And that's why we are urging for diplomacy, uh, restraint, de-escalation, respect for international law, and, and really working to address the core issues underlying all of the violence. And, you know, folks might have different opinions about what that is, and that ultimately that's the nature of this conflict. But you know, we have to look at the systemic oppression of Palestinians uh, over generations and generations, decades, and and to see that this is an unsustainable situation. Uh, and if we want to, you know, move forward, I mean, just the loss of life that we are seeing in Gaza right now is is unprecedented, and and it's happening so quickly. These civilians are going to be facing just such an uphill battle to get their lives back together for years to come. And that that's even if we reach a permanent ceasefire tomorrow. So we have got our work cut out for us. Israel's military goal is to destroy Hamas. That's their statement, and they haven't backed away from that at all. They say once hostages are free, the airstrikes and ground assault by the Israeli army will resume in Gaza. Does President Biden in the U.S. Congress have any leverage over Israel in this situation to effectively push for a permanent ceasefire? There really is a lot of leverage that we have and, and leverage that's not being used. Um, I, I keep hearing that while the, the U.S. is publicly really giving Israel the bear hug, privately, they are pushing. And I, I, we do know that, but we need to take the behind-the-scenes conversations and actually start pushing publicly. And then, you know, the administration has called for more aid. They've called for a lot of things and, and for this war to be conducted, you know, in the bounds of international law. That's not happening. We're seeing war crimes unfold before our eyes on social media, on CNN. We see IDS spokespeople admitting to war crimes on air live. And so we need to, one, start calling out what we're seeing and then saying, okay, well, they've asked for the right things, but then what? If it's not, if international law and U.S. law is not being followed, some of the levers we have are, you know, economic, diplomatic pressure. There's also this supplemental. As we speak, there are furious negotiations going on behind the scenes on what's going to be in that 14.5 or, or so billion aid package uh, to Israel. Re Republicans are pushing to slash all humanitarian assistance uh, to Gaza. So right there, we need to keep aid in uh, whatever is passed. They urgently need it. And two, you know, more and more senators are now opening up the question about conditioning aid and saying, you know, one, you know, we're not going to give you this uh, this military funding uh, unless 
you, you know, things dramatically change on the ground. Uh, you, you know, and I, I think that's a strong place to stand. We are also pushing, I don't want to get too in the weeds, maybe for, for a longer conversation, but there's a provision of the Foreign Assistance Act called 502B. Um, and this is one other potential vehicle to require states to report on human rights abuses and actually open up the door to conditioning, restricting, or halting altogether, if senators so choose, military aid to Israel. And, and I think that is a really interesting tool that any single senator, uh, you know, whether it's Senator Murphy, Senator Sanders, and others, could really tomorrow introduce this bill and, and call into question the entire aid package to Israel. So I think it's really important that uh, we stay focused on ceasefire, but also take a look at what other levers we have. Um, uh, you know, if there, a new arms sale is notified, you know, we can certainly do resolutions to block those as well. Uh, Representative Omar, uh, she led a resolution, uh, HJ Res 102, to block a PGM or Precision Guided Munitions Kit. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to build support for that legislation and really just keep the drumbeat going that U.S. weapons shouldn't be used to violate human rights anywhere, whether it's in Gaza, whether it's in the West Bank, whether it's in Yemen, whether it's in Iraq, whether it's in Syria, just you name it. We cannot support any sort of human rights violations, and we need to get tougher on that. That was Hassan Al-Tayyab, Legislative Director for Middle East Policy and Advocacy Organizer with the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Learn more about the group's advocacy for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On November 20th, a two-to-one vote by a three-judge panel of the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that only the U.S. Department of Justice can bring lawsuits under Section 2 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which, if upheld, will deprive private citizens and advocacy groups from filing legal challenges to fight racial and partisan gerrymandering of legislative district maps and voter suppression laws. Since the U.S. Supreme Court gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, many Republican-controlled states across the U.S. have engaged in blatant gerrymandering and passed dozens of laws making it more difficult for targeted minority communities and young people to vote. Over the last 50 years, groups such as the NAACP have challenged these laws and maps, sometimes succeeding in reversing them for their racially discriminatory impact on election outcomes. This 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling came after the Arkansas ACLU, on behalf of the state's NAACP chapter and the Arkansas Public Policy Panel, challenged Arkansas's state house district map, maintaining that it dilutes the voting power of black people. Your reporter spoke with Nicholas Stephanopoulos, Kirkland and Ellis Professor of Law at Harvard University, who examines the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that overturned decades of precedent and the ruling's impact on voting rights and democracy if it's upheld on appeal before the U.S. Supreme Court, whose conservative majority has severely eroded the Voting Rights Act. The key background here is that um, Section 2 is the central operative provision of the Voting Rights Act today. Uh, so about a decade ago, the, the Roberts Court 
effectively nullified the other major part of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5. And so ever since that decision a decade ago, uh, Section 2 has been basically uh, the entire ballgame for minority voters who are complaining about discriminatory district maps, uh, discriminatory electoral practices, uh, voter suppression that disproportionately affects voters of color. All of those electoral policies have been challenged uh, under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And when the Supreme Court struck down the other half of the Voting Rights Act, the court said, uh, you know, don't worry. Uh, Section 2 remains in force throughout the country, available to thwart discriminatory electoral practices uh, wherever they, they may come about. And so the background here is that this is an absolutely critical civil rights provision that would be completely frustrated uh, under the, the logic of the Eighth Circuit. Uh, so the, uh, the Eighth Circuit held that only the Department of Justice and not private individuals, not private groups or parties uh, can bring claims under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, I, I called this decision brazen because it flies in the face of uh, decades of established practice. Uh, Congress, when it um, adopted the current language of Section 2, said that it believed there was a private right to sue under Section 2. Uh, five members of the Supreme Court assumed that there was a private right to sue under Section 2. And uh, the court has also held outright that there's a private right to sue under two other Voting Rights Act provisions that are basically indistinguishable in their structure from Section 2. Um, and maybe most importantly, there have just been hundreds upon hundreds of private lawsuits uh, under Section 2 uh, over the last several decades. And every one of those private-initiated lawsuits uh, should not have happened, according to the Eighth Circuit. You know, in, in this court's view, not one of those cases should have been able to proceed because only the Department of Justice uh, has the ability to bring uh, claims under this provision. Um, and so it's, I think it's, just, it's truly brazen for two judges on an intermediate court of appeals to decide that uh, they know best and uh, Congress made an error. Five justices of the Supreme Court made an error 20 years ago when they said that Section 2 did create a private right of action. And all of the thousands of litigants and judges uh, who have uh, prosecuted and decided these cases over the years have also been in error in thinking that uh, the private parties can sue under this law. So it's just you know, the, the, the arrogance, the, the brazenness of this, of this decision is really something else. Professor Stephanopoulos, th this case, as you were saying, if only the federal Department of Justice can file lawsuits in the future on behalf of private clients or advocacy groups, how will that, in your view, impact voting rights across the U.S. going forward? Yeah, it, it would massively diminish the enforcement of Section 2. So if you look at Section 2 litigation activity historically, uh, maybe 95% has been initiated by private actors, and maybe 5% uh, has been comprised of actions brought by the Department of Justice. So if only the DOJ can bring these claims, we're probably looking at something like 120th the level of enforcement activity that we've seen over the last several decades. Um, and it could get even worse when you have a uh, Republican president presiding over the Department of Justice. Uh, so under the, the Trump administration, under the, uh, the George W. Bush administration, there were essentially no 
Section 2 lawsuits brought by the Department of Justice. Uh, so under the Eighth Circuit's reasoning, we would be looking effectively at uh, next to no enforcement of Section 2 whenever Republicans control the Department of Justice and you know minor levels of enforcement when Democrats control the Department of Justice uh, and just a pale shadow of uh, the level of enforcement that we see today uh, when private actors are able to take advantage of the law. That was Nicholas Stephanopoulos, Kirkland and Ellis Professor of Law at Harvard University. Learn more about the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling's impact on the 1965 Voting Rights Act by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The 54th National Day of Mourning this year took place on Thanksgiving Day in Plymouth, Massachusetts. The annual rally and march is organized by the United American Indians of New England to celebrate Indigenous lives, to mourn what Indigenous tribes and nations have lost through settler colonialism, and to lift up current struggles. About a thousand people attended this year, making it one of the largest gatherings in its history. There was a great emphasis on the struggle of the Palestinian people, with much chanting against Israeli attacks on civilians in Gaza. One of the speakers at the rally was Harriet Prince, an 82-year-old survivor of a Canadian Indian residential school who became a famed powwow dancer after she left the school. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus was at the rally and recorded Prince as she told the story of her abduction from her family, her experience in forced confinement, and how it shaped her life. In her talk, Prince references the 250 remains of Indian children identified at one of the Indian schools in Kamloops, Canada, in recent years. I went to three residential schools. I was four years old when I was taken away and didn't get out till I was 17. I didn't go home all those years. So I was uh, robbed of family love and all, and all that, but I survived. <laughs> Still here. My my little sister was three years old, and my my brother was six years old. When we got there, we got bathed, took our clothes away, cut our hair, and the first three nights they put DDT in our hair. Can you imagine that? And they put in DDT in our hair and wrapped our hair in turban style and. Slept that way for a long time and they put us to bed. We could hear little girls crying. We were lonely. We were scared. We didn't know where we were. I was four years old. My sister was three. And we wondered, when's our mom and dad coming for us? They didn't come till I was 17 years old. I didn't see them till I was 17 years old. We only went to school for half a day. I was four years old. Maybe when I was seven, they got me to start scrubbing floors on my hands and knees, sometimes with a toothbrush. What saved me was Elvis Presley. <laughs> my hair, my brush was just going in with Elvis Presley there. <laughs> that was in 56. I, I was 12. I don't know. what You do the math. <laughs> 
we didn't get all that much education, half a day of school. The rest, we had to do housework, sewing, scrubbing floors, and laundry. As I was getting older, I started learning from the older girls how, how to behave, how to listen. So I was scared. I, I was scared to get punished. So I listened and, and hid most of the time from the staff because I didn't want to be slapped or head around again for speaking my language. To this day, I, I mostly understand my native language, Anishinaabe, Ojibwe, but I can speak it if I had to save my life. I had two close friends, and uh, we decided we were going to run away. We didn't last long. They came and found us, and we got strapped, of course, and uh, we had walked up to our arms up here. We still had to go to school that way, and we had wore long sweaters. Thank you. <laughs> Needed to hear that. Um, they made us go to church quite quite often, and all I heard in church was death, death. And in our in our culture, we talk about life, life. They put that fear of God in me and the fear of death in me. Now I'm ready, Creator. I'm re I'm ready because it's going to be a good life. Up there, yeah. we'll, see my, we'll see the ancestors. When I heard about the 215 uh, in the Kamloops area, I was bound and determined to go find those uh, unmarked graves and pay my uh, respects, put my tobacco down. I sat there, put my tobacco down, prayed and cried and talked to the ancestors. And there's more. There's more schools, there's more, there's more on my graves out there. It could very well have been my little sister or myself that would have been down, down one of those on my graves, but we were lucky. We got away. As residential school survivors, truth helps us survive. And our spirit is what holds our bodies together. Our anger, I call it righteous anger. We have to work on getting rid of this anger which I'm still working on today, because from four years old to 17, my childhood was taken away, my family. All the love I should have been having. Through ceremony, we can overcome this. Ceremonies and the culture saved my life. Love also. We must first forgive ourselves in order for us to feel love, to love ourselves first, and then work on forgiveness. They didn't get rid of the Indian in me. I'm still here. Thank you. <laughs> that was Harriet Prince, an 82-year-old survivor of Canada's notorious Indian residential school system, speaking at the National Day of Mourning March and Rally in Plymouth, Massachusetts, on November 23rd. Find a link to a video recording of all the speakers at the event and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPPM in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, WHYS in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, KMUD in Garberville, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>